Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 82 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Now, I'm taking a one episode pause from our series looking at writing the scene to bring you the missing episode. Let me explain what I mean by that. This is an episode that I recorded of a conversation with the writer Bob Hartman. And I recorded this episode over two years ago. And I've discovered that for some reason, soon after I released it, the episode disappeared. I'm not sure why, but I've decided to re-release it and hopefully it will stay available this time. But before I play you that interview, I want to give you a final update on the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook project. Now, the crowdfund for the handbook is closed and we got 93% of our target. So that's £930. And I'd be lying if I didn't say that I wanted to reach £1,000. Of course, I did. But hey, the glass is much more than half full and I pretty much have all the budget I need to develop the book. So I'm very happy. And thank you to those of you who contributed, including the following people, Alexandra Harper, Chad Zorg, Chris Arthur, F. Prenderville, Jay Torrell, Kate Rauner, Nicole Friends, Rennie Hankins, Ray Kenny Rife, Sol Kershaw, Steve Rogers, Ted Inver, Tom Hunter of the Arthur C. Clarke Award, Temi Topi Okobadejo, and Wendy Jones. And if I pronounce anybody's name wrong there, I do apologise. Thank you to all of you. And also thank you to several anonymous donors. You know who you are as well. So I have the resources now that I need to bring you the Creative Writers Toolbelt Handbook. And that's going to be a compilation of the very best advice and insight from over 100 episodes of the podcast, plus the wisdom from 25 different guests that I've spoken to over that time, writers, editors and artists. And the handbook will be available sometime in September or October 2017. Now, if you're thinking, oh, no, I missed out on the crowdfund. I want to get involved. Don't worry. You can still make a contribution to the project if you want to. Just drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com, and I'll tell you how you can do that. So back to this episode, and I'm bringing you an interview that I recorded in summer 2014 with Bob Hartman. Now, Bob is a children's writer and storyteller. He draws inspiration from the Bible and classical sources like Aesop's fables for his work. In this interview, he talks about the essentials of writing for children, as well as storytelling and how to approach a publisher. Here's the interview. So thank you very much, Bob, for the opportunity to have a chat with you. Can we start then by you telling me a little bit about your background and then how you got into storytelling? OK. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, originally, home of the uh, world champion Pittsburgh Steelers. Not at the moment, but um, we've won more Super Bowls than anybody. Just saying. Um, I, uh, I'm married with two kids, um, but my kids are grown. Uh, Carrie is, uh, what, 33, Chris is 31, and um, Carrie's got three kitties, um, and they are eight and five. Leah just turned five yesterday, and um, two. So um, Malachi, Leah, and Jacob, they're lovely. They live in the UK, um, but um, my son lives in the U.S., and um, how did I get into storytelling? Uh, I suppose I started out as a pastor in a church and was telling stories to people in the church who were older, who were familiar with the Bible stories, and who sometimes switched off whenever they started to hear a story they, they knew. So I started to try and find different ways into the stories 
so they wouldn't necessarily know where we were going to start with. And then having drawn them in, I would then be able to kind of take them along because I'd kind of show them a different way to tell the story. Yeah. Okay. So you started by, did you start by telling stories to adults then really? Is that, is that where it began? It was adults actually. I mean, most of my storytelling is with children today, but yes. yeah. But initially it was with adults, just, um, you know, kind of it was survival instinct, really. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to yeah. uh, get through that um, and get through the sermons. Um, but I found out that I had kind of a knack for it and, yep. and enjoyed doing it. And so then when I finished that particular ministry, I got talking to my brother who was in children's theater. And he was very keen on developing storytelling as well. So because he was in children's theater, we just started to develop stories that were aimed more at children right. and uh, came up from there. What do you think you learned from your time as a pastor then in terms of telling stories? Yeah, a lot of it had to do with, like I said, is finding that different way in. So if you were doing the story of David and Goliath, maybe instead of starting with, you know, once was a shepherd boy, etc., you started with maybe something to do with Goliath's background. And we don't know much uh-huh. about him, but we yeah. know a little bit. So, you know, well, you had four brothers, something like that. And, you know, you kind of worked it up from that end so that they didn't quite know where you, where you were coming from. Yeah. I do think, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, the element of surprise, you know, is kind of important, particularly with a story that people know. What do you think then are the essential elements for great stories for kids and particularly kids rather than adults? What, what, what have you learned over the years? I mean, for me, and this has a lot to do with the kind of stories that my brother and I told, but humor is incredibly important, um, I think. I mean, Tim's really funny. He's just naturally funny, and he's a comic actor. And so there was always going to be humor in whatever we did. But I think what we discovered as we were telling the stories was that kids just responded really, really well to that. So how did you make your your stories humorous? And, And are you talking here about the written word being humorous, or are you talking about performance performance of stories as, and, and humor in that way i think a bit of both i think that initially it was the performance uh, and as i say because tim was naturally funny it was easy to kind of set things up i mean i tended yeah. to be straight man and then would sort of set things up so it was a, it was almost like there was a bit of stand-up in it as well you know but then what happened was as i began to create stories of my own I'd look for the humor in situations and essentially create characters who, like, were me and characters who were my brother. Um, And so you kind of create that kind of dynamic between your characters that you're constantly sort of setting up the jokes. So I think I learned a lot about humor by working together with him. And then I just let it carry on to the written stuff. How important do you think having a real authentic character is to making humor work or making your stories work? I think the authentic character is what is what makes it believable. Right. So in a sense, you know, you have to, I mean, in, I've got a series of Bible retellings um, called Best Mates, and I've got three slightly dysfunctional disciples who are kind of at the heart of that. Okay. It's uh, Pip, who's Philip, and Tomo, who's Thomas, and, and Big Bart, who's Bartholomew. And I just decided quite arbitrarily that I would make Bartholomew more or less the stupid one. I don't know why, it just, you know, he just struck me that way. Um, but the thing is, he... He couldn't just be stupid for stupid stupidity's sake. And yeah. so I just created this huge backstory where he has umpteen different ants who are also, you know, really dysfunctional. So he's always drawn on his experiences with them. And it's kind of like you get used to the fact that he's going to have all these stories and that the stories are going to be absurd and really random. But, you know, out of them, the humor flows. And somehow they also kind of touch on, you know, the, the matter at hand. So how important is backstory then? 
for the kind of stories that you are writing and telling to children? I, I think it's really important. I think you have to know who your characters are. And again, it comes back to kind of a legitimacy. You have to understand who they are. Um, and as long as you understand who they are, then you can give them an authentic voice. It doesn't jar anymore, does it? It's like you know who they are, and after a while, the audience knows who they are, and it becomes really apparent when you put something in your in their mouth, and you go, "Oh no, that's not right." You know, yeah, that doesn't quite work. Um, I don't know. Um, do you watch The Big Bang Theory? Their main humorous character is um, is the Sheldon character. I mean, it's two. Uh, you know, it's a, a, sort of a room full of four geeks who are friends, and right. they. Uh, yeah, you know, they're they're scientists and computer nerds, that whole thing. Um, but Sheldon is the one who who they draw most of the humor from. Okay, right. Um, and every now and then, and it's funny because we watch it quite faithfully. Every now and then, they have Sheldon say something where you go, "No, it was a good joke," but Sheldon wouldn't really say that, you know. Yes. But yeah. I mean, they, 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 they fudge a bit for the sake of the humor. But like when you fudge a bit for the sake of the humor, then you know that you're forcing it, you know. So so is there a, there's a kind of tension then between humor and authenticity. in character. Yeah, absolutely. Well, which is why, for example, in the Best Mates books, I also let Pip, who is the kind of youngish, sort of naive one. And Tomo, who's a bit world-weary and a bit grumpy, I also let them have some jokes, too. You know what I mean? Because it's not fair that Mark gets yeah. all the jokes. He shouldn't have all the good lines. I, no. Only him, yeah. No, no, that's right. Because in, in any relationship, it's not just one person that's funny. Everybody else, even though they kind of maybe are most of the time quite seriously, still sometimes get, you know, get a, either get a real good zinger in or just, you know, make a funny comment. And so, again, I think it adds to the legitimacy of the, the relationship to have – you know, that humor come from the other characters, too. So earlier on, you mentioned that um, sometimes you come to a story from an unusual angle or, or, or not the way that people would expect you necessarily to do that. Have you have you used that technique in your written work for kids at all? Yeah, I mean, I've done like some just straightforward flip flops of stories. So like um, uh, one of the books that's done really well is The Wolf Who Cried Boy. I probably wrote it, I don't know, 15 years ago. Yeah. And at the time, there were a lot of um, retellings of traditional tales that were kind of turned on their heads. So the Stinky Cheese Man and, you know, um, oh, I don't know, the, the what was it, the Three Little Wolves and the Big Bad Pig, something like that. You know, people were playing with, yeah. with tales. Yeah. So um, I thought, well, what could you do with an Aesop? And, of course, the thing is, with any kind of a flip-flop, you've got to find – you're going to find something that can, again, be legitimately flip-flopped, if you yes. see what I mean. Which means, it's interesting, which means that, like, in the title, you have to have a verb in between. It's like if you did a story of the lion and the mouse and somehow yes. the lion saved the mouse, well, that doesn't work because, I mean, the whole point of the story is that the mouse saves the lion. But okay. in, the, in the story of the wolf who cried boy, you had the boy who cried wolf, he had to lie for a particular reason, so you had to come up with some reason why, you know, a wolf would lie about boys, why he would yes. call a boy, yeah. you know. yeah. And, and so in that particular story, um, this is just a little wolf, and his mom's always cooking stuff that he doesn't like, you know, and so yeah. he's always moaning about it. And so he says to his dad, well, look, you know, what I really want to eat is a boy, you know, <laughs> um, what, what, which is fair enough. He's a wolf. I really want to eat a boy. And his dad's like, oh, I'm sorry, son, you know, it's, it's tough to catch a boy these days. But if you do, you know, we'll be happy to cook him up for you. So 
What happens is he comes home the next day and he smells what his mom's cooking. I think it's three pig salad or something, which he hates. And so he decides, oh, he's just going to call boy, boy, there's a boy in the woods. So they all go racing after the boy, the mom and the dad do. And of course, they can't catch him because he's not there. Um, and in the end, they have to have um, they have to have snacks instead. I think it's like chipmunks and dip or something like that. <laughs> and in the end, he manages to accomplish the same thing that the boy who cried wolf accomplishes. He manages to put off something bad and yeah. make life more interesting yeah. by lying yeah. about it. You know. So I think. See, I think if you're going to do a flip flop, if you're going to play with this story again, there has to be a certain legitimacy there. It has yes. to make sense. Yes. Yeah. So do you take an idea like that, a novel idea, and think, how can I make this real and authentic? Yeah, you do, because, I mean, you run into dead ends as well sometimes, yeah. you know? And you're like, ah, oh, no, that doesn't work. So you just kind of have to retrace your steps. Um, like, I've managed to do it with uh, <laughs> the sequel. we got the same illustrator. Okay. It's the sheep in wolf's clothing. So, again, it's, it starts the same wolf family, features the same wolf family, but with this sheep who she's bored with her life and – so she gets her folks who are very wealthy. It's very interesting. The illustrator is brilliant. So he's got them as the posh family. The sheep are really posh. And so they pay for, for howling lessons for her, and she gets a wolf suit shown, uh, uh, sewn up for her. And then she uh, she gets sent off to school, and it fits in fine until the lunch break shows up, and she sees what everybody else is eating. So anyway, it kind of goes from there. We've talked about character then a little bit. Are there other essential elements that you think have to be in a great story for kids? Yeah, you've got to have a really compelling problem. With kids, I don't think you can get away with kind of a half-hearted conflict. I think there has to be something really compelling that they can get their teeth into and feel that, you know, this particular character is under threat or this particular character has to get out of this situation. It has to be really clear and really plain. You can't really be messing about with it. It has to be really clear and the thing the thing with kids is you know not only do they like a good clear uh conflict they also like a really clear resolution you know okay so can you can you give me an example of that from from some of your work well i can give you an illustration of it but it's, i mean the story was already there it's the story of daniel and the lion's den okay and when i retold daniel and the lion's den originally in this book angels angels all around that i did the premise of this of the, of the whole book was that God sends angels to do specific tasks relating to well, whatever, whatever it is that they're being called to do. So yep. in the case of Daniel and the lions, then the angel comes. He's, he's really good with lions. Like, you know, it's not like he's some big, powerful guy. He's just like he's really good at playing with lions. And since the Bible doesn't tell us how the angel shut the lions mouths, then I just have the angel playing with the lions. You know, he tickles oh, okay. them, he scratches them behind their ears. Yeah. They spend yeah. the whole night goofing around. They have a great time. And that distracts them from playing with with daniel or from from eating daniel yes yeah what was <laughs> as you know <laughs> when daniel finally survives and gets rescued by the king the king drops the advisors who tricked him in the first place because they were jealous of daniel he drops them in the den and, and they get eaten <laughs> yeah and, which is what happens in the story <laughs> because that's what happens you know in the original story well I had, i've had no end of like you know parents and teachers saying to me well that's not very nice you know you know the, the the bad guys got eaten, you know, in the end. And I'm always like, but the kids love it, you know? Yeah. Because <laughs> the well, bad guys get their comeuppance. I mean, say what you will, kids like a strong resolution and bad guys getting yeah. their comeuppance. I mean, if Voldemort and Harry Potter had shaken hands at the end and all walked off and you know, arm in arm and had a good old time, I don't think anybody would have been happy with that. So do you think that kids are not as squeamish then about the bad guys get their just desserts as maybe sometimes some adults are i don't think they are i I think at the end of the day 
we we're squeamish on their behalf because we 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 want everybody to be nice to one another in the yeah. end. Yeah, yeah. But but the reality is that the stories that the kids end up really loving are the ones where the baddies, you know, as I say, get their comeuppance. Yeah. They just they well, I mean, I'm trying to think of a story where you know everybody walked off happily arm in arm in the end. The kids absolutely that just doesn't happen. No. You know. Is there anything else you can think of that's like an essential element then for stories for children? Well, I think what you've got to remember is what it's like to be a child. I mean, I, I think it's some of the stuff I've done and a lot of it's rooted in my own memories of childhood. And and for me, one of the you know, overwhelming memories of childhood, and I think this is true for any kid, is that you're actually not in control of very much at all. So you always find yourself in situations where <laughs> I'm here, this is going on. You know, I got to stay here. I got to put up with this, and, and and so you know, I've got to find my best way to kind of muddle through it. I, I did a book. This is years ago. It's one of the first the books I did called Aunt Mabel's Table. It was all about this boy who goes to visit his aunt, who is also slightly dysfunctional. I think she related to Big Bart. Anyway, um, and he gets there, and his cousins and his uncle and aunt are sat around the table, and in the middle of the table, there are tins with no labels on. Okay. And the, the point is that you got to pick up a tin, you have to shake it, you have to guess what's in it, and then you have to eat whatever is in your tin. You got to have whatever it is. Okay. Now that might sound absurd, except that when I went to visit my grandmother, yeah, <laughs> she didn't have a lot of money, and so she bought tins with no labels on it. We okay. did exactly that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, there I was as a kid, you know, at grandma's house, and you know, I was going to eat if it was lima beans, I was going to eat lima yeah. beans. If it was yeah. Spaghetti, I was going to eat spaghetti. If it was dog food, well, I don't think she went that far. But, you know, no. it could have been. Yeah. So. Are there other lessons that, that you could think of that um, storytellers, let's just let's say storytellers rather than necessary writers, that storytellers need to bear in mind if they want to captivate their audience? And this is like written word or performance. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly from a performance point of view, I always tell people that uh, that storytelling is essentially relational in nature. That, that I mean, certainly in terms of the live uh, experience, the relationship between you as a storyteller and your uh, your group, um, yeah. whatever your audience, it's got to be it's got to be really really good because at least in the way I do the storytelling, it's very interactive, and I give them things to do and we sort of do things together and build the story together. Okay. But but I also think that's true with storytelling in general. I mean, you can you can, for example, in the live experience, offer the odd descriptive you know, a bit of descriptive language, but on the whole, you know, you're putting that story together and you're seeing one thing and maybe they're seeing another thing. And there's a sense in which you're, you know, you're building the same story, but maybe different stories too, because you know, your imaginations are kind of going to work individually in that process. And I think that probably happens, you know, even with the written word, I mean, you can't absolutely and utterly describe absolutely everything. I think it would, these days it would, it would be considered boring anyway. Yes. Yeah. But uh, so there is still a kind of collaborative effort. I always tell people that that when I was a teenager, a teenager, I read Lord of the Rings for the first time, and yep. and when the Peter Jackson film came out, I was reasonably happy with the way that he brought Gollum, in particularly, to life for the Balrog yeah. or you know Gandalf. Yeah. But but what frustrates me to a certain degree is that a lot of children are going to come to the Lord of the Rings now after they've seen the films, and there's a sense yes. in which a lot of that imaginative process that I was able to enjoy you know, having read it without having seen it is mm. in a sense going to be lost mm. because those images will be in their heads. So how do you, how would you encourage that imaginative process? If we think about the written word now, um, what kind of 
language or what kind of style of writing do you use to, to encourage the imagination of, of the, the young readers that you're working with? Well, it sort of depends. I mean, if you're doing a picture book, in a sense, you're in the same situation, aren't you? In a sense, that's a collaboration between you and the illustrator. And my feeling, um, the more I do it, is that I, you know, I pair it back as much as possible. I, I say as much as I think needs to be said to push the story along and, and try and leave the illustrator a lot of freedom. And, okay. and you could argue, I suppose, that that's probably not a bad idea full stop, that you use the best language you can, and when you describe the, the things that you feel you need to describe, you use the best language to describe it, but maybe that sort of sets the tone for the way then they uh, engage in the imaginative process yeah. as well. You know, if you're using good language and, and, and kind of pushing the way that language gets used, then maybe you help them to stretch a little bit too. Can you give me any examples of that? What, what, is, what, is, what are we looking for in terms of, as writers in terms of good language then? And, you know, I'm like every writer. I mean, you, ha you have moments where you go, oh, yeah, wow, I found that. Yeah. And then moments yeah. like, eh, I got close, but, you know, wasn't quite there. Um, and I'm just going to spend the rest of the day on this paragraph unless I move on. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, what works is that moment when you find exactly the right words to say everything and yet, you know, to say it, I, there's just something about just saying it succinctly and, you know, and beautifully, it's it's the right words, you know, in the right order. So you you can you can talk about the rhythm of the thing and the alliteration and all that kind of stuff, but it's just the right words at the right time and just enough of them, you know. Uh, there's a, there's a line I did a book about a little boy, a picture book called Tapestry about a little boy's granddad dies and his his grandma sews him this tap this tapestry to give him an idea of kind of what heaven's like really that's really what it's like it's about hope and um and and when um danny at the beginning of the story is at the grandma's house he's looking at uh bits of his granddad's clothing I and mean, he's looking at the jumper that the granddad wore when they went outside and at the cap that he wore when they played football and then there's a line that i really like about the the shoes the the shoes are laying there the, the big brown boots with the laces adrift uh and i can find try I hope I can remember it, that uh, Danny had uh, stepped in and stepped on and skipped over and scuffed. Yes. And, and, yeah. and he, you know, stepped in and stepped on and skipped over and scuffed. I mean, obviously, you've got some nice alliteration there, but it also says everything about the relationship the little boy has with his grandfather. Yeah. But, yeah. but focuses it, you know, on the shoes. And it sounds from that example as well as if they've, you've got very specific descriptions going on so it isn't i mean one of the things um i talk about in my podcast when i'm talking about uh trying to get um trying to show rather than tell is being very very specific being quite sparse in the way description works but being very specific so yeah. particular things so um i don't know whether the, you you use that kind of thing whether you use very specific descriptions or bold things or sensory sensory cues or anything like that with with the work that you do i do yeah yeah I mean, because, and that's exactly, I think, what I'm trying to get at here, that, you know, stepped in and stepped on and skipped over and scuffed is, I mean, it's all you need to say. It's yeah. not much, but it's also everything. And, yeah, it's, and it's I great, think, isn't it? Yeah, it works, doesn't it, I guess, in its simplicity. Yeah, yeah. I think when you can find that, it, it just, it makes you happy. <laughs> are there any other stories, I mean, are there stories for children out, out there at the moment that you're aware of uh, they could have they could have been written recently or some time ago that you think 
anyone who wants to write for for children should read those stories should should that they're they're really a great example of 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 what you're trying to do there's a book that that uh that i really like at the moment it's funny you know you kind of fall in love with books and you and you kind of that's yeah. the one you're talking about all the time um i have you don't even have any idea how old it is it's not that old i don't think but it's don't let the pigeon drive the bus um what we didn't what i didn't ask you and i should have done i think because it, it, i think it's quite relevant is um what age range you write for can we do that now? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I tend to write for primary age kids. Um, okay. And, and partly it's because having done the storytelling for primary age kids, I was just spending a lot of time with them yeah. and getting a kind of clear idea about what they liked and creating material that would be used orally anyway. Um, so it just made sense to continue the work in that direction yeah. by kind of yeah. doing the written stuff for them too. Yeah. So is that kind of any anywhere between what five and ten or is it yeah i mean five and eleven yeah five and eleven okay yeah although i think some of the picture books would probably reach down to four as well but yeah right. five to eleven is about right yeah okay and um what other advice if any would you give to people who want to write for children or children of that age well i again i think in addition to remembering what you were like at that age and what you know, appealed to you or what scared you or what you found interesting. I, I think it doesn't hurt to actually spend some time with children that age either. I know it's, it's not absolutely necessary. I mean, I, it just seems to me that, you know, if you're going to be writing for kids then there has to be some way of understanding, you know, kind of where they're coming from. And, and there's no better way of doing that than actually sort of spending time with them. I, I don't mean like, you know, sitting in bed and saying you have to, <laughs> you have to sit here and listen to this story. But um, just to hang it out with them, you know, you discover the most amazing things um, and you discover, I think, kind of what they like and what they don't like. Yeah. So you've got grandchildren in that age range. I do. So what are you learning from them at the moment? What do, what, what are they teaching you about what they like, what interests them, what's, what works for them as a story? Well, it's different, of course, because, you know, they're eight and five and two. Yeah. So um, Leah, I'll start with Leah. She's in the middle. And uh uh, you know, Leah's a very girly girl. I mean, she, you know, everything that's pink and shiny and sparkly and princessy, she goes for. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of girly girls out there who there who feel exactly the same way. So she she loves that aspect of the story. Now, on the other hand, <laughs> she's up for a bit of violence, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, she does it because when we play, that's the thing, you see, when we play, you know, you dare not give her a sword because she's going to get whacked, you know. Oh, boy. Um, so, so it's a kind of funny thing, isn't it? It's kind of like you'd think it'd be all girly and sweet and nice, which yeah. she likes to a certain degree, but she doesn't mind a bit of that sort of, you know, princess turning around and, you know, chopping yeah. Yogurt's head off, which so, I, might be like the whole Frozen thing. I don't know, but, you know, I yeah, think she goes yeah. for that, yeah. So that, I mean, that would... That would suggest to me that um, there will be children of that age who they want their like their female protagonists to be girly girls, but they also want them to be quite assertive sometimes. Oh yeah, to kind of boss boss the action a bit. Well, I mean, I think the popularity of both Frozen and Brave before it, yeah, you know, if you're going to reference Disney stuff, suggests that that's exactly what little girls are looking for right now. Yeah. You know, better take charge there, you know. <laughs> that is interesting. So what about uh, – so the uh, remind me, what, what's the oldest one called? Amalekai. Amalekai. And he's eight, is he? He's eight. So what does what is he looking for in a story? Uh, he's just 
Yeah, he's crazy about adventure. He just well, he just finished the last Harry Potter book, so right. Um, he's he's been reading Harry Potter the last yeah. you know month or so. Um, but I mean, before that, it was sort of Hardy Boys, and he did the Chronicles of Narnia, and okay. um, and it's a, a smaller series, Geronimo Stilton, which is about a mouse detective, okay. um, and those were funnier. But I think, but I think in each case, you had a lot of adventure. And some fighting, you know, I think in each of those cases, there was some fighting going on, yeah. some humor. Um, so, yeah, that sort of thing. So, I mean, trying to get published when you're a children's writer is tough, I'm thinking. Mm. I, I, I don't know whether you'd agree with that. I suspect you probably would. I agree. <laughs> I have the pile so, of rejection letters to prove it. <laughs> okay. There's a couple of things I want to ask you about that. I mean, first of all, is there any any other advice you would give to people who want to write for children write something (laughs) (laughs) Um, step one write something yeah well that's it's like you know have no you're probably in the same situation i've had no end of people say to me i've always wanted to write a children's book and a lot of people say that yeah Um, yeah. but then you say well have you written anything and they're like well no (laughs) and and i think you know step number one is you've got to move from i've always wanted to do this to actually doing it Okay. Because at the end of the day, you know, you're not going to get anything published if you never write anything. No, that's true. That's you know, and then you're never going to get anything. You're never going to get anything published if after the first or second or third or even twentieth rejection letter you give up. Okay. Um, so, so there's something about perseverance in this, is there then? Yeah, it's huge. I mean, certainly in my case, where it was probably two years before I had the first book accepted. Right. Um, why do you and, why do you think the one that got the first thing you got accepted? What was it? The, what was that book? The, what was the first book you got accepted? To be entirely fair, it was a complete fluke. Um, I mean, it was a good fluke in the end. But um, it, I had written a book uh, uh, called Lobster for Lunch okay. about a boy who goes to one of those restaurants where you know you grab the lobster from the pot and cook it up, and he didn't want the lobster to be boiled, and so you know he, he basically saves the day. It's kind of a vegetarian okay. adventure. Yeah. Uh, and uh, maybe a vegan adventure, actually, I suppose. It was amongst a bunch of things I was submitting at the time, because 25 years ago, you could do multiple submissions, you know, the yeah. simultaneous submission yeah. thing. I mean, that yeah. just doesn't work anymore today. But um, back in those days, you could. And uh, there was a little publishing company in Maine called Down East Publishers, and uh, they did one children's book a year, okay? <laughs> uh, <laughs> the rest were travel books, you know, and cookery and all that from Maine. Yeah. Yeah. And so because it was about a lobster, <laughs> they decided to buy it. So, I mean, it was a small advance, and, I mean, yeah. I, you know, we didn't sell very many of them. I mean, it was a very, very small print run. But for both myself and the illustrator, it was it was both our first books. And right. so, yeah, it was quite quite exciting, really, yeah. So, but although you say it was fluke, I mean, you had to you had to take the two pieces of advice you've given, which is, one, you had to write it. Until you had to submit it and keep sub- and then it wasn't the first thing you submitted. It was the whatever umpteenth thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you're right. It wasn't a fluke in that it was ultimately a result of having yeah written it and, and having not given up on that particular story, you know, but having sent it around and around and around and around. Yeah. And are there are there other bits of advice you, that you would give or things you do uh, when you're when, let's say you've written a story, you've had a great idea, you've written your story. Um, how do you submit it? If if somebody's listening to this and they they maybe want to write for children that age, they've never submitted something before. Yeah. What's the process they should go through to be smart about this? 
Well, the first thing you have to do is to go onto the websites of the um, publishing companies you want to submit your manuscript to. Uh, I mean, it, it, again, things have changed so much in 25 years. Back in those days, you know, you'd buy the children's writers and illustrators market, which is, is still not a bad idea. But but the reality is that most of the information that used to be in those books is now on everybody's website. So, you know, I mean, say you want to, you know, uh, submit to Barefoot. Um, well, you go on their website, and probably what you get is, we're sorry we don't take unagented submissions. That's a different yeah. um, but the other thing you have to do is you have to um, you have to see what kinds of things they're already publishing. I mean, there's there's no point sending a nonfiction book to a company that only publishes fiction, you know. Or there's no point in sending a kid's novel to a company that primarily does picture books. Particularly if they've said, we're really looking for picture books right now, we don't want nonfiction. If they say on their website, you know, this is what we want and this is what we don't want, then, you know, you do that. You know, you don't send them something that they're not looking for. Yeah, and that, and, and that sounds that sounds blindingly obvious, but I know, I mean, we know, don't we, that, that a lot of publishers get sent stuff, which they, is completely not what they're asking for or what they're looking for. Absolutely, and all you would have had to do is spend five minutes looking at their list to know that that's just – that's not what they want. Don't bother. It's a waste of time. You know, a waste of a stamp. It used to be a waste of a stamp, but you know, it's just a waste of your effort. But of course, the other thing is, as I, as I suggested earlier, is that increasingly, you know, publishers are using agents as their clearinghouse. And so as it, it, it has become probably as difficult to get an agent as it is to get published, yeah. you know. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's no other way into some publishing companies. That's not true for all of them. No. And I guess if I was starting today, much like in those days, I, I started by sending everything out to people who would take simultaneous submissions. Today, I would look for those publishing companies that, uh, that, that took submissions directly from an author and kind of try and, you know, plow that furrow first before yeah. I moved on to, you know, trying to find an agent. OK, so what else do you do then apart from writing? <laughs> Um, you mean like like to earn money or just generally? Well, yeah, it could be, yeah, of both. Both earn money and generally. Well, to earn money, because I'm a storyteller, um, I visit schools. And, yeah. uh, you know, like a lot of authors kind of get paid for those visits, which is great. And, and I also um, teach other people how to tell stories. There is, you know, still a huge call, I think, for people who, you know, have those skills, particularly storytelling, because loads of people are keen on trying to figure out how to do it more effectively. So uh, that's that's the other thing I do to try and raise money. Um, and then for fun, you know, I really like films and listening to music and, you know, cars. I like to drive my car around. Car. You know, I know you like cars. <laughs> um, now, if people are interested in um, getting in touch with you, maybe because they want to talk to you about you doing some maybe some teaching on storytelling, how, do, how would people get in touch with you? To do yeah, they could just email me. I mean, I don't mind giving my email address. That that's okay. fine. Yeah. So should um, I do that then? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Tell us. They, they, they could just email me at it's hartmanbob2. That's the number at hotmail.com. So, so that's H A R T M A N Bob, and then the number two, isn't it? Yeah, at hotmail at hotmail.com. And yeah. um, if people are interested in your written work, where can they go to to find that? Um, well, most of my books have been published by Lion Hudson, so they could go to Lion Hudson's website. That's lionhudson.com. 
I did a Bible app for kids. I mean, uh, and that's actually a free download. That's kind of cool. Uh, so so if you, that, could, you could just go to so uh, iTunes Store or one of those one of those kind of places to get that. I presume. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I would, you know, I would encourage people to, I mean, you know, if it's the, the Christian stuff they're looking for, the, the Bible retellings, I encourage them to go to their local Christian bookshop uh, to, first, you know, and and see if they can't find the stuff there. Because I just want to really support those guys because it's not yeah. an easy time for them right now. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. thank you very much, then, Bob. It's been great to talk to you. Um, yeah, you too. As, as we said, if people want to get in touch with you, it's HartmanBob2 at hotmail.com perfect yeah thanks very much no problem cheers i hope you found that interview with bob hartman useful during the course of the conversation we referenced the following works don't let the pigeon drive the bus by mo willems which is published by walker books the harry potter series by jk rowling published by bloomsbury the chronicles of narnia by c.s lewis published by harper collins and the geronimo stilton series apparently authored by Geronimo Stilton himself, published by Scholastic Books. And Bob also referenced his own works, Angels, Angels All Around, The Sheep in Wolf's Clothing and The Wolf Who Cried Boy, all published by Lion Children's Books. So that's all for now. And so until next time, thank you again for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 